Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Catherine Boughton. Her book is called Shouting Won't Help, Why I and 50 Million Other Americans Can't Hear You. It's just out in paperback from Picador. And memoir is a very key part of this book, but it's also a much broader book, as the and 50 million other Americans suggest. You're really tackling this issue at, at the broadest levels of hearing loss. Yes, actually, I'd say the book is about half went memoir, and the other half is reporting I did on the extent of hearing loss in this country, the attempts to make people realize how much hearing loss there is in this country. It's it's a, it's a very invisible condition. People don't want to acknowledge they have hearing loss and ignore all the warnings that come with ignoring hearing loss. And um, so one of the things I'm trying to do is just bring a higher profile to hearing loss. And because I'm not really elderly myself, I also think I'm a good spokesman for illustrating the fact that the majority of people with hearing loss in this country are under 60. It is not just a condition of aging. So I've, I've, I've gotten up on my stump box once I finished writing this book. I like that memoir part. That was very, very interesting for me to work on. But the reporting is was the meat of the book and the part that took me longer to write. And you talk a little bit about this in the introduction to the paperback edition, that as you've alluded to, since this book first came out, you've really kind of stepped up and become a much more vocal advocate of, of this situation. Well, I've evolved emotionally throughout the whole course of writing this book. I started to write the proposal in 2010, uh, probably. I began thinking about it in about February. I worked all that year through a proposal, which became, initially, it was it was full of anger and self-pity and fury at everybody around me who didn't understand what, what I was going through and what my hearing loss was like. As I came to, to the point where I was ready to distribute the proposal, my agent said, you know, this is really great. I think you have a selling proposal here, but you got to find a happy ending to this. So I thought really hard about it. I said, now, what kind of happy ending is there to hearing loss? But actually, there is. I realized that I had become much, much closer to my friends. I had held everybody at bay for a long time because I couldn't hear them and I didn't want to talk about it. Uh, once I started to talk about it, my friendships just became much more intimate. I also saw people more on a one-on-one -on -one basis, um, not so much in groups. My relationships with my family, my husband, my two now-grown children... Um, had been very frayed by the fact that I couldn't hear them, that I was angry all the time. And so as I put the book together, and then over the next year and a half as I was writing it, I was also learning to hear better with my new hearing instruments. I had had a hearing aid for a long time, but I got a cochlear implant in 2009. So I was relearning to hear at the same time that I was learning to deal with my hearing loss. And I learned a lot about how many mistakes I had made and how bad it is for your own psyche and your, your physical, social, and emotional well-being to deny hearing loss. There's no end point to it. And this point of, or this period of denial was fairly extensive in that you talk about the initial onset of your severe hearing loss happening at age 30 and coming on rather suddenly 
for you? At age 30, I, you know, thought I was going to live forever. I also didn't think that I needed to have two, he- two ears to hear with. My hearing in my right ear was fine. And so for the next 20 years, actually, until the progression of my hearing loss really took hold, I heard entirely with my right ear. I would say to people, you know, sit on my good side here. Or can I walk on this side of you going down the sidewalk so that I could hear them? Um, but I really made light of it. I didn't acknowledge to anybody the seriousness of the hearing loss even when it became very, very serious. Uh, Most people knew I had some problem hearing, but nobody understood the depth of the problem I had hearing. My whole life was basically a facade of somebody who could hear. I'm very good at reading lips. I'm sociable. I, you know, I could carry it off. But inside I was, uh, it was really killing me. I mean, it was so demoralizing. I became more and more nervous about speaking out about anything, even, you know, in a small group because I couldn't hear what other people had said. I didn't You know, even at a different party, I didn't know whether somebody had just asked the question I was about to ask or if um, when I finally caught up to whatever the subject was, they moved on to something else and here I was coming in late. So I felt like just less and less confident about myself and I started withdrawing more and more. Once I started acknowledging the hearing loss, it became much easier for me in those social situations because I couldn't hear any better, but I I was no longer afraid of making a fool of myself. Right. And I did make a fool of myself um, several times, I think. But it, it sounds like once people had a reason that they could understand for, for why this was going on, that it became much clearer and, and much more understandable. It was. Relatable. I, I think um, people, because I don't noticeably seem deaf, I speak you know, very clearly, and I do read lips very well, and I and I pay attention, and I can hear. And also, I've spent my life working with words. I was an editor for my whole life and writer. I don't need to hear many words of a sentence in order to be able to put the whole sentence together. I can hear three words, and the whole sentence makes sense in the context of whatever we're talking about. So when I tell people I have hearing loss, they very often forget it. Half an hour later, they've completely forgotten that I ever said that. So, But it, the main effect of telling people is that it gave me confidence again. I no longer felt like I was always on the verge of making some blunder that would make me look stupid or old or senile. It, and it happened a lot up until that point. So. And how much of that defensiveness or that defensive posturing would you say had to do with you alluded to being a newspaper editor yeah just from the description alone one gets the sense that it's a highly competitive environment in which your your hearing loss would have been immediately pounced upon as a weakness it's true that the hearing loss itself might have been considered a weakness but more than that the times where I worked for those years is uh, is not only competitive, but it's a very youth-oriented environment. It's also a very troubled business, and people are being um, laid off, or buyouts are going on left and right. I mean, the staff is about the third this last it was before. And so I felt it was very, very important for me to, to appear youthful and strong and ambitious, and I thought that wearing visible hearing aids would undermine that picture of me that people think, oh, she wears a hearing aid. She must really be getting old. That's not true at all. As I just said, you know, more than half the people with hearing loss in this country are under the age of 60. Even if you think 60 is old, a whole lot of those people also have hearing loss at ages 30, 40, and 50. So 
For men, in fact, the onset of hearing loss comes most frequently in the 40s and 50s. And these are the kinds of things that you discovered in the reporting process that you talked about earlier. And it sounds like, as you've kind of described it in an earlier response, that transition from turning this solely into your personal story to that uh, that process of discovery when you were finding out about hearing loss as a broader condition both transformed the book and was for you personally transformative, perhaps. What it actually did was, I was very, my hearing loss was undiagnosed. And so part of the motivation for reporting was to try and figure out what had happened to me. I didn't figure out what happened to me, but I, I came up with some hypotheses in the book, which I actually do think my hypothesis is correct, um, which is that after a very grueling um, trip I made to Turkey when I was... 30, just before I lost my hearing, I got very sick with food poisoning, and I was then sick for about two months, and about three months after that, um, oh, and then I came home and started writing about this trip for the New Yorker, and I was just uh, very excited, but also under tremendous stress, and I think I picked up some kind of a virus that triggered, you know, whatever uh, weakness in my genetic structure was that caused my hearing loss, and my hearing loss over the years, as it has progressed, almost always taken the big drops during periods of extreme stress for me. So I, I do think it's I have some genetic weakness that stress gives an opportunity um, to sort of lunge up and take hold of me again. It also, um, I've had very bad vertigo from time to time, and that also is related to stress. But to answer the rest of your question, I was also interested in you know, why we can't cure hearing loss, you know, and why we can't treat hearing loss more effectively. So I spent a lot of time talking to audiologists, people who work with hearing aids. I didn't understand why they were so expensive. I didn't understand why insurance didn't cover them. I am beginning to understand all of that now. And I'm also learning that there are alternatives to hearing aids for people with mild to moderate hearing loss. They're far less expensive than uh, traditional hearing aids, which usually start at about $3,000. Um, they're controversial. I, I'm all in favor of them as a starting point. They're basically personal sound amplification devices. The audiology industry is less happy with them because audiologists don't dispense them. They only dispense hearing aids. Um, but they also have, I think, a legitimate worry that people who try these PSAPs, as they're called, and if they don't work for them, they'll just say, oh, nothing's going to fix my hearing, and they'll give up altogether. You know, for people with not very much money and early hearing loss, you know, try one of those try one of those cheaper instruments first. It may work for you. If your hearing progresses, you may have to move on to a hearing aid. But I think um, the most important thing to remember is that you aren't doing yourself any good mentally or physically, if you ignore even mild hearing loss. You talked a little bit about the stress that it placed on your your closest relationships with friends and family. I think particularly uh, the stress it placed on your relationship with your husband, Dan Meneker, that you talk a little bit about that as well. Well, Dan has always been actually very, very patient about my hearing loss. Not about everything, but definitely about my hearing loss. He's been, he has been wonderful and supportive about that. It's very hard for me to talk on the telephone. Even now, it's, um, it's still hard. And so if I have to call, you know, the help desk at Apple, I can't follow what they're saying. And plus, it's going to take forever and it's really boring. And so I'll, I'll make the call and then I'll hand the phone over to, to Dan, my husband, and, 
he'll work through the whole thing. So I think from time to time I've, I've exploited that, but I really do need him or somebody else. Um, my daughter sometimes does the same thing. Friends do the same thing. Often if some my phone rings in a restaurant, I'll hand the phone to whoever I'm having lunch with and say, you know, could you answer this because I can't. Dan and I both were writing memoirs at the same time. and I was actually going to ask about the experience of, of the two of you working well, on a memoirs together. Our, our experiences are very different. He's a fiction writer, novelist, fiction editor, and his book is very interior and talks a lot about his experiences at The New Yorker and at Random House, but it's mostly, his is mostly pure memory. I come out of a newspaper background. I'm, I'm a reporter. I wasn't a reporter at the time, but I have been a reporter. I've been a nonfiction writer over the years, and I believe in facts. I think I love facts, and so for me, it was very, very important to explore my own situation in terms of facts that I could ascertain. So, And I don't think I made any mistakes. I made one mistake in this book, which is now corrected. I put somebody at the University of Wisconsin in Madison when they were actually in Milwaukee. I was very proud of myself that that was the only error that seems to have appeared. As the two of you were writing these separate memoirs, were you showing each other things in progress or or, or are you more private Um, about it? I think we both wait until we feel we have something pretty strong to show. Uh, Ironically, Dan was not working on his memoir when I started my book. He was just publishing his book prior to that, which was called A Good Talk. It was about the art of conversation. So he was in the middle of writing about conversation and talk, and I was right in the middle of writing about the fact that I can't have conversations and can't talk. It was, I think, just coincidence, um, but it was a funny coincidence. So now we stay, we're pretty independent in our writing. You mentioned that one of the things that your husband and your your daughter... And And I have a son. And a son, that, that one of the things that they'll do for you is, you know, take your phone calls in a restaurant and you write about how restaurants are one of those environments that those of us without hearing loss kind of take for granted. But for those of us with hearing loss, they're an extremely, or can be an extremely difficult environment. And that's because hearing aids are not very good at filtering noise. And restaurants are really, really noisy. The decibel level in a restaurant usually is is uh, 90 decibels or above. That's a comfortable environment like the one we're in right now is probably 70 decibels, and decibels are um, algorithmic, so the time you get to 90, you're talking about a really, really loud environment. And so people with milder hearing loss, I did this myself for years, would usually just take off their hearing aid in a restaurant, put it on the side of the table, because they, they, couldn't, they couldn't stand that barrage of noise around them. The danger with that is that, and I know of several people who've done this, that if you're not paying attention and you put it on your plate, you may actually pop it into your mouth. I do know somebody who did that. But for you, people who can hear, and I think more importantly, for people who work in restaurants, chefs and kitchen staff and uh, waiters are working under conditions that OSHA would not actually be approving if OSHA had any mandate over the restaurant business. I don't think they do. They are exposing themselves to really dangerous levels of noise eight hours a day. And it has to be affecting their hearing. Noise is the number one cause of hearing loss in this country. But even for those of you who just like to go out and eat in restaurants, you're not doing your hearing a lot of good in those situations. I have a long section in the book about why restaurants like it that way. It has to do with chewing faster, 
turning tables faster, getting you to drink more. Um, these are all studies that have been done by sociologists. So, but it's in it's in our interest to have the restaurants be quieter. What are some other public environments that raise similar issues? Um, where it's unnecessary noise. Where it's an unnecessary noise yeah. or, or, or problematic noise. Some noise, I think, is just unavoidable. Traffic noise is unavoidable. If you're standing in the middle of Penn Station, it's going to be noisy no matter what. But Penn Station's a good example, actually. Actually, I don't think Penn Station has this, but an airport, for instance, is a good example. It contributes to the noise level of that those big open spaces, but the method of communication between airlines and passengers is a PA system. So you have you now 40 PA systems competing with each other. You know, flight 2723 to Milwaukee is departing, you know, passenger. So, and meanwhile, you know, at the next gate, flight 6240 is um, now boarding gate, you know, 42, zone one. And so you, it's just this wall of noise in an airport. I find airports one of the most difficult situations, and they don't have to be that way. There is nothing wrong with good visual signs. The New York City subway system has done a fabulous job in eliminating most of those announcements that nobody could hear, hearing or not, and replacing them with those LED displays that tell you when this train's coming, if there's a delay, where to, you know, what train to take instead. I think that is one of the one of the the most useful things that's happened in public transportation in years. It's good for people like me who can't hear, but it's also really good for anybody traveling, I think. We talked a little bit about, at the beginning of the interview, how you've gone out since this book has come out and, and talked about it from your perspective. But what are you hearing from other people who are reading this over the last year and then reaching out to you? And I have gotten the most amazing mail, and I still get letters like this. It's more than a year since the book was published from people who experienced either sudden or who now have very severe hearing loss who, like me, thought that they were one in a million. My email address is available everywhere on my website, on my blog, and uh, people do email me directly, and they they pour out their hearts to me. It's so gratifying. Even if I sold, you know, two copies of this book, it wouldn't matter because of the response that I've gotten from people who say, thank you so much for telling my story. Thank you for, you know, giving me the courage to speak out myself. That's incredibly gratifying. It's, it's, it's not very often that you can do something that really makes a difference in another person's life. So that part of the book has been a surprise to me and one of the most gratifying parts about writing the book. And is this an issue that you will continue to write about in the future, you think? I have a blog called What I Hear. It uh, runs on the Psychology Today site, and I write about it once a week about sort of daily issues affecting people with hearing loss. I have a proposal out right now to write a much more practical book about hearing loss. I think people really do not know where to start when they suspect they have hearing loss. They don't know where to have it tested. Once they have it, I mean, you can have a te you can test yourself online. You can go to a public facility and have your hearing tested for free. You can go to a university or college nearby and have it tested for free. And then when they find out they have hearing loss, they don't know what to do next. They don't know where to buy hearing aids. Hearing aids can be bought at Costco. They can be bought at Walmart. They can be bought online. They can be bought at your local Belltone dealer. Or you can go to an audiologist and and buy a hearing aid. And then people are you know, want to know, well, what can I do? I don't have $3,000 to spend on a hearing aid. What, what's, what are my alternatives? So I want to explain, you know, what some of those alternatives are. Um, I want to 
what, write about you know what kind of hearing aids you need for what kind of hearing loss, how to find a good audiologist. There's just people have hundreds of questions, and that's only in you know the smallest area of just treating hearing aids, deciding to get uh, treating hearing loss, deciding to get a hearing aid. I see this as a as a paperback and a useful book that people can sort of stick in their bookcase and pick out as questions arise about you know what to what to do about something that's that's come up in terms of hearing loss. I also have another bigger book um, that I'm working on in on the side also something stemming from my private life but um, it'll probably be more of a, a social history than a memoir. Well I hope that this book encourages a lot of readers to explore some of those options that you described for getting their hearing tested or to ask their general practitioner the next time that they're in for an annual physical to help them find an option to get their hearing tested. I have been talking with Catherine Bowden about Shouting Won't Help, Why I and 50 Million Other Americans Can't Hear You, you have been listening to Life Stories, and if you are subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed through iTunes yet, it's very easy to do. Either way, I hope that you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, which makes it a little bit easier for other people looking for us to find it in the iTunes store as well. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Take care now.